You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that creatures, creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have been the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according, in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, when I started preparing this sermon, uh, I anticipated this being a relatively short reflection on Psalm 23. Uh, And uh, as is often the case, as I started to do my work of getting ready, I realized that God was taking the sermon a different direction. So I'd still like to frame our sermon today uh, around Psalm 23. What I discovered as I was researching and studying and preparing this is that this passage that we read out of Romans really is almost an exposition of Psalm 23. And so I'd like to look through uh, Romans 8 together today and see how well it lines up with what we learned from the psalm. 
So the first thing about Psalm 23 that we have to uh, grapple with is its author. And so the, the uh, proscript or the superscript of the psalm uh, tells us that this is a psalm of David. Like most of the psalms, we don't know exactly when it was written. Some of them we have some information about, but most of them simply indicate an author. Uh, and so this is simply a, a psalm of David. But looking at the content of the psalm, we can, we can surmise that it was probably sometime after he became king. We, um, we see in a lot of the other psalms direct references to uh, the people who are attacking him, the people who are uh, persecuting him. We don't see as much of that in this passage. Uh, the, the back portion of it, which we'll look at, seems in many ways to be a reflection on his history. Uh, and, and so we see that he is in the, um, he's in the presence of his enemies at times, but that he's in a place of victory over them. But I want to think for a second about all of the different things that David had gone through by the time he became king. Uh, e even simple things like being raised in a family with many, many sons. Uh, th that's a difficulty, especially in a society like that where resources are often scarce. He was a soldier. He saw many battles. Uh, he killed many uh, men in battle, which has its own kind of uh, wear and tear on your spirit and your soul. He was persecuted violently by Saul, whom he had sworn to protect and to defend. Uh, even times when he had the opportunity to take the throne by his own power, his own abilities, uh, he was still sworn to protect Saul, and so he did not take advantage of those. There were periods of his life where he was exiled from Israel. He had to live among the enemies of Israel. He had to live among the Philistines. And more than that, there were, there were likely times where he faced deep despair, and we see that throughout the Psalms, that there are times where it seems as though David is actually feeling abandoned by God. He says so much. There, there's Psalms that end, uh, end on a down note. Uh, I think it's Psalm 88, where the last, the last line of the Psalm is, darkness has become my only companion. And so we see a man in David who um, is persecuted, he's uh, attacked, he's threatened, and so he, he did not have an easy go of things. And so when we read Psalm 23, we have to read everything in the psalm in light of that. This isn't a person uh, who's saying, my life has been rosy, everything's been, been fun. This is a person who's trusted in God despite very difficult circumstances. When we look at verse one, the meaning is, is pretty straightforward. Uh, it reads, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. This is a straightforward affirmation that God will provide for all of our needs. We trust in God, not just for salvation, but we also trust in God to do what's best for us on the physical um, horizon as well. So we look at passages like Matthew 7, which says uh, in verse nine, which of you, if his son asked for a bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And so David here is affirming that uh, even though life will not always be easy, uh, and, and we will at times face want, we'll face a lack in our lives, we trust that God is providing all of the things that we need. And David here refers to the Lord as his shepherd. And so we, we think of passages in the New Testament, which compare Jesus to the good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. 
the good shepherd lies down his life for his sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks and the flock scatters it. And that's from John 10, 11, and 12. Jesus here says that he is the good shepherd and that as the good shepherd, he lays down his life for the sheep. But what we often miss when we read this passage is that the shepherd is dealing with things that are difficult on our behalf. So it's not the case that because Jesus is our shepherd, there will never be wolves, that we will never be attacked. It's the case that the good shepherd comes and defends us when that happens, even though we sometimes still have to suffer under the persecution or the uh, attacks of those who are enemies. We still have to recognize that Jesus is providing for us by laying down his life. And it's for that reason that Jesus says to us, do not be anxious. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your bodies, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? So we see here in Christ's teaching that not only do we have um, concerns of the day, he says at the end of that passage, to not worry about tomorrow for today has enough concerns of its own. We see that there are concerns, practical concerns about life, about eating, drinking, about providing for our families. And he says, don't worry about that. Don't, don't worry about that. Seek me and I will take care of those things. And even if those things do not come to you, even if you do suffer from a lack of food or a lack of resources in your life, that I'm still the good shepherd and I still will lay down my life for you. As we move on to verses two and three in the psalm, he says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Now, I often hear when this, this psalm is reflected on, we focus on the green pastures and the still waters or the quiet waters. And we think about those as good, pleasant times. We think about the, the, the shepherd who takes his sheep and he takes them to this nice, open green field where there's, you know, there's dandelions and it's pretty and maybe there's a bird chirping off in the distance. And then we think of him taking those same sheep to this gently flowing stream. And I think that those are valid takeaways in terms of what it is that, that God does for us. But we have to remember that verse three follows verse two. And so it says, he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And he does that as a function of restoring my soul. And so when we read verse two in light of what verse three says, and we don't divert, uh, divorce those two from each other, we see that this psalm is, is really more about God saving us and sanctifying us than it is about considerations about our life and our temporal needs. That's there. We do trust God to provide those things. But him, him making us lie down in green pastures and him leading us beside quiet waters is for the purpose of restoring our souls. And he restores our souls in sanctification in order to glorify his name because he guides us in paths of righteousness, not for our sake, not for our name's sake, but for his name's sake. And one of the things that I want us to think about today is those green pastures and those quiet waters don't often feel still or green or quiet. 
they sometimes feel very troublesome. I think in our, our current climate and context, we have, um, we have coronavirus, we have people who have lost jobs, we have other health concerns, we have all sorts of, um, of disturbances and disorder and disarray in our country. We have entire states that don't have power and are struggling to get basic things like food and water. And so sometimes I think we look at this and we think, am I really one of the sheep? Because my life doesn't seem like it's a green pasture. And my life doesn't seem like it's being led beside still waters. And in times like this, I find that Christians often sort of throw out this passage here. They, they just sort of say it as though it, it solves the, the issue. Um, and they read to people, they, they read Romans 8, 28, and they say, and we know all things that, uh, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And sometimes Christians, well-meaning Christians will, will quote this passage to someone who's struggling with a difficult thing. And they'll quote this passage to sort of say something like, what you're feeling right now, even though it feels bad, is actually good. And there is a certain amount of truth in that for those who are called according to God's purposes, for those who love God. There's a certain amount of truth in that this, this difficult path that we walk on leads us to the end result of sanctification and glorification. But that's not to say that the bad things that are happening are in themselves good. It's to say that God works those bad things for the purpose of bringing about a good end. And so it continues on in verse 29 and says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so this, this function of God, this decree of God to work for good, all things for those who have been called according to his purpose, that just like in Psalm 23 is not for our sake. We drive a benefit for it. That's certainly true, but it's not, it's not primarily for us. The purpose of sanctification in our lives and the suffering that causes it is that Christ might be glorified and be the firstborn among many brothers. And I think if we get that wrong about either the psalm uh, or about Romans 8.28, if we get that wrong, then the rest of those parts of those passages, the rest of that, um, that doctrine goes sideways very quickly. And that's where we end up with, uh, with the health and wealth gospel or prosperity gospel, where people uh, basically have no room for suffering in their life. And I'm not sure what's happening with the health and wealth uh, people through this pandemic. I'm not sure how they're how they're wrestling with it, because this does not seem like a period in any of our lives where we can say that we really are thriving or prospering. Uh, a lot of us, a lot of people are sort of just hanging on by the skin of our teeth, trying to just make it through this thing. And so we have to remember that whatever we're going through, if we are called and chosen by God, that that will necessarily be brought to a positive effect, both for our good, but more importantly, for the good and the glory of God's name. So the psalm carries on into verse four, and it, it's, uh, it's very clear here now that David is not saying uh, everything will always be uh, rosy and nice for those who follow the Lord. Because he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And when we disconnect this verse from the previous three verses, that's where we, 
we understand or we lose an understanding of this holistic picture of what God is doing in the lives of his children. It's not as simple to say that God, God makes things good, right? It, it's not usually the case that a person trusts in Jesus and then life is easy and rosy. But instead, what we see is that even though sometimes we face difficult decisions and difficult situations, that God is still with us and that we can face those decisions with our head held high and confident in the outcome because the Lord is with us. And, you know, it's interesting because a lot of times when you read ancient interpretations of the Psalms, particularly the, the, the rabbinical interpretations and even some of the more ancient uh, Christian interpretations will look at a Psalm and they'll identify what the central line, the middle line or word is, and that that is considered to be the primary point of the Psalm. And so this verse uh, overall is the central verse of the psalm. And when you count out the words, the central clause of this psalm is, I will fear no evil for you are with me. So the point of this psalm is not to say that there are going to be these exceptions to our normally green pasture, still water life. And even in those exceptional times when things aren't as great as they usually are, we can, we're okay. That's not the point of the psalm. The point of the psalm is that the still waters and the green pastures are not contradictory to the valley of the shadow of death. And it's not because of anything in the still waters or the green pastures or the shadow of death. It's because the Lord is with us. I was reading in my devotions the other day, I'm working uh, through the Old Testament right now, and I came across uh, 1 Samuel 3. Uh, verses 11 through 18, and, and it just really stuck out to me. So the, the context of this is it's right at the beginning of 1 Samuel. Um, if you remember, Samuel's mother was barren, and then uh, she prays to God, and God gives her a child, and she dedicates the child to the Lord. And so Samuel goes at a young age to live in the temple and to sort of serve uh, the priestly family uh, as kind of an attendant. And so he has this experience where he wakes up in the middle of the night and the Lord is calling to him, and he doesn't know it's the Lord, so he goes to see Eli, uh, the priest, and Eli is, is kind of annoyed with him. He's got this kid waking him up in the middle of the night saying, I, I'm here, you called for me, and Eli's like, I, di I didn't call for you, will you just go to sleep? And after a few times, Eli realizes that it was the Lord calling to Samuel, and here's, here's what uh, the Lord says to Samuel after he responds. He says, and the Lord said to Samuel, See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from the beginning to the end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Samuel lay down until the morning and he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision, but Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son, Samuel answered, here I am. What was it he said to you? Eli asked, do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me everything he told you. So Samuel told him everything hiding from him, hiding nothing from him. And then this last, this last sentence here is what just, just leveled me. He said, then Eli said, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. 
So, so Eli here is recognizing that the Lord will do what is right. And even though Eli has not uh, been the most faithful person in Israel, he didn't restrain his sons. He didn't fulfill his office as a priest appropriately. He didn't manage the household, his own household or the household of the Lord well. Even in all of that, he is still trusting the Lord to do what is good. He, he's even saying the judgment and the, the, the punishment and the chastisement that is about to fall on me in my house even that is from the Lord. And because he is the Lord, he will do what is good in his eyes. So that brings us back to Romans 8. And, and this is going to be the bulk of our, of our consideration here. So starting in verse 18, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So we, we see in this, this little chunk here that even the world is suffering under consequences and effects of sin. The creation has been subjected to frustration not by its own choice, you know, there's a little personification here, but by the will of God who subjected it. And I think sometimes we read this and we think that this is saying that the, the creation is sort of corrupted by the fall. And, and so someday God's going to fix it, which is, is true. But if you look at this carefully, the, the creation is not subjected because of the corruption of the fall. It's subjected in the hope that the creation itself will be liberated from bondage to decay. So it's, it's in, this, in this passage here, it's as though the creation itself is frustrated and longing for God to make all things right. It, it's, it's in effect, the creation itself is saying, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because the Lord is with me. So that leads us on to, to 23, and he says, not only so, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait for the uh, eagerly for our adoptions as sons, for the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, in this hope that is, uh, hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already, already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So Paul's building an argument here. This first section is that the creation itself is waiting in eager expectation for the redemption of all things. And now we, even those who have been saved, we're waiting for the consummation of that salvation for the final day when God will set all things right. And he's really, he's really clear here is that this world that we live in is not its final state. Because if we hope for what we already have, then what sense does that make? So he's pointing forward to a day where all of the things that we hope for, for, for the redemption of the world, for the adoption, our final adoption, where we are acknowledged outwardly as the sons of God, which is an inward reality for us now, for the glorification and redemption of our very bodies, that is what he's pointing to for the future. And so when we read and when we think that we are in the valley of the shadow of death, part of the reason why we are able to fear no evil is because we have this expectant hope that God will set all things right. And then he goes on and says, in the same way, 
So in the same way that the creation and our very bodies grown inwardly, in the same way the Spirit helps us with our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express, and who searches our hearts knows the mind of God because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. So we have the creation groaning, we have ourselves groaning, our own bodies groan, and now we have God himself, God the Holy Spirit, in accord with the Father's will and the will of the Son, the Spirit groans for the redemption of all people. So we have we have here what's called an anthropomorphism, where, where the, the God is described in human terms. So we shouldn't look at this and think that God is sort of sitting up in the clouds, wringing his hands, you know, just kind of waiting for the day where he can finally put things right. That's, that's not really what's going on. But what we do see here is that God himself desires to bring about the redemption of all things. And so God is going to execute that redemption in his perfect timing and plan. And so all of that is what leads into us being able to say that we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Because he, those he predestined in uh, Romans 8.30, those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And so all, all of this groaning and waiting and hoping, all of this is for some future reality. But Paul, as he does often, Paul, Paul puts these verbs in the perfect tense. And so he does that in order to emphasize that the things that he's promised, the, the predestining, which is a past event, necessarily leads to the conforming to the likeness of his son, the justifying of the saints, and the glorification of the saints. And so those future realities are so secure in the mind of Paul because of the promise of God that he can speak of them as though they are past tense realities, not because they've already happened, but because he's confident that God will certainly execute his will. I want to read, um, I know that we've read this question before, but this has, um, this, this question has been a lot of reflection in my life lately, and this is Heidelberg Catechism question one, and it reads, what is your only comfort in life and death? And it says as an answer that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who, with his precious blood, has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live unto him. And I was having a conversation with someone the other day about how this pandemic has changed my perspective on things. And the best thing that I can compare it to is um, most of us have probably seen uh, the original Wizard of Oz movie with Judy Garland. And if you, if you watch that movie, the first scenes uh, when she's still in Kansas are all in black and white. And then the tornado comes and she wakes up in Oz and all of a sudden it's in color. All of a sudden there's, there's vibrancy and life. And I think that this pandemic 
and, and all of the different difficulties and struggles that have come with it. And it's not just the pandemic. I'm sure that everybody has had moments in their life where this kind of thing happens. But it's like all of a sudden these verses that talk about suffering, these passages that talk about the difficulties that the saints will, will face. It's like I was looking at them in black and white, and now all of a sudden I'm looking at them in color. It's like I woke up in Oz, and all of a sudden this is the reality for me now. And there's one verse, uh, one, one section out of this question that I think is, is just amazing. And it says, indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Not just the difficult things, not just the easy things, not just the Christian things, but the things that happen to me in my job. All things work together for my salvation. And it's it, the other thing that's that's good to think about is that this uh, question, which is really just a reflection on Romans 8, it says, he's redeemed me from all the powers of the devil. And the consequence of that is that not even a hair can fall from my head apart from the will of my father in heaven. And I think as Christians, sometimes when, when bad things happen to us, or we face un, uncomfortable difficulties. We think that that is somehow a moment where God's sovereignty has, has lapsed and like the devil got through and somehow got at me. And so if I can just get back to the point where I'm no longer uh, in disobedience to God, or I'm no longer uh, outside of his will, that then I'll have my protection from the devil again, and life will go back to being comfortable and good. But what we learn, not only from this question, but more importantly, from, from the scriptures from Romans 8, is that even though it may be that the devil is afflicting us, right? the book of Job is in the Bible. So we understand that at times God allows Satan to afflict his people for a greater purpose. But even more so, just as Job, Job understands, it's not the devil that took away from him. It was the Lord who took away from him. And so we should, we should read this passage with that fully in mind, is that if I lose my job because of the pandemic, that's the Lord taking the job away from me so that he can make that subservient to my salvation. If I get sick in this pandemic or I die, or if someone close to me gets sick and dies during this illness or is in a car accident, as difficult as it may seem, we need to recognize that if we are Christ, then that too works good for the purpose of conforming me to Christ's image. And I know that that is a difficult pill to swallow when we're in difficult times. And that's why it's important for us in relatively peaceful times to, 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 to bring this down into our heart, to, to appropriate this and just to drive it into our hearts so deep that when, when we are in the green pastures and we have sort of the, the bandwidth in our minds to think about this stuff and to process it, that when those green pastures turn to the valley of the shadow of death, it's still there for us. It's still there for us to turn to. So we go on into uh, verse five of the Psalm. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. And so we, we see that there are times where there's what's called natural evil, the things of the world that are difficult, the things of the world that don't seem to be right, where people get sick or when they're injured. But we also see that there is uh, personal evil, where, where people are the culprits, people are the ones who afflict us. And so even in those times when we face oppression, when we are opposed by the world, we still have our needs provided for by God. And this is because, as we've been learning through this passage, 
because God has chosen us and he set us apart for his purposes. So we are able to overcome anything that comes our way. The reason that uh, the reason that the Bible can say no weapon formed against us shall prosper is because God has chosen us for his purposes and his purposes cannot be thwarted. So even in the presence of our enemies, when it feels like things are really dark, we are still unable to be overcome. And so that's why Paul says to us, what then shall we say in response to this? And he's talking about everything that he said about God predestining us and conforming us to Christ's image. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So what Paul here is saying is that if, if it is true that God works all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, and if it is true that God will certainly justify and glorify all of those whom he's called, then, then there's nothing that we have to fear in this world because nothing can overcome that. And so whether it's someone in, in the world bringing a charge against us, whether that's a, a legal charge, someone brings us to uh, court because of something we've said or something that we've done in service to the gospel, or whether it's someone who seeks to destroy our reputation or to cause us to lose our jobs, who can bring a charge against us? Because ultimately it is God who justifies. Who can condemn us, right? Peter says in, in uh, 1 Peter 3 that we should, uh, we should be ready to give a defense uh, for the hope that is ours in Christ. But the reason we should do that or the way we should do that is with a clean conscience. Because even though people will come to us and they will accuse us, we should, we should have our conduct be such that those accusations are clearly seen to be ridiculous. And then he goes on and he says that it is better to suffer for doing good than it is to suffer for doing evil. So even when, even when we're tempted to cut corners or to uh, let this or that sin slide because it makes life easier, we still have to recognize that it is better to suffer for doing good than it is to suffer for doing evil. And then Paul closes this uh, little section here by saying, nothing can separate us from Jesus. So even if someone does bring a charge against us, even if someone does condemn us, ultimately those things cannot separate us from God. They cannot because God has determined to save us and he's determined to make Jesus great by making us look like him. Finally, uh, in the Psalm, David expresses this, um, this trust in the Lord. He says, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So there's two words here. You, you may have heard it um, in other translations. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Sometimes it's goodness and kindness. The word goodness is relatively straightforward. It's the same word that's used when God looks at creation and declares it good. What David is saying here is that the, the blessings of the Lord, the, the, um, the favor of the Lord will follow him all the days of his life. 
And then the word love here, the reason it gets translated so many different ways is because it's this beautiful Hebrew word hesed, which is, is the covenant faithfulness of God. So we're talking about sort of the, the general blessings of God and the goodness of God. And now we're talking about the specific covenant blessings that God bestows on his people. And those things is what are what David says will follow him all the days of his life. And because this goodness and covenant faithfulness from God follows David all the days of his life, he can be sure that he will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so Paul echoing this in verse 37 says, no, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So all of the things that Paul talks about, all of the persecution, the nakedness, the famine, the sword, whether it's natural evil that is coming against us or whether it's personal evil that's coming against us, he's convinced he has a sure, uh, a sure footing. He's standing on solid ground when he says, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor anything else in all of creation. And, and I would, I would uh, add to this, not even ourselves can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Because the last thing that I think we need to recognize about David, uh, even at the point when he uh, was writing this psalm, even if this was early in his uh, kingship, David is a sinner, just like us. David faced the same temptations and the same things that we did, and he failed. But because God has chosen to save us, because God has chosen to make us look like Jesus in order to glorify his name, nothing can separate us from the love of God. 